Hi, I'm Melissa Corkum. I blog at our family website, www.thecorkums.com, which we affectionately call The Corkboard. This is the Uncorked Podcast, conversations with everyday extraordinary people, people who have conquered, people making a difference in their worlds, brave and beautiful people, but people who in the end are just like you and me. If there's one thing I've learned over the past 10 years, it's about how much I didn't know that I didn't know and how much I still don't know. Our experiences and adoption and loving kids who have aged out of the foster care system, living in the country but owning a coffee shop in the city, and just traveling internationally have so greatly expanded our horizons and shifted our paradigms, and hopefully we're better humans for it. The one common theme through all of those experiences, though, was just listening to people's stories. Patty Dye once said, the shortest distance between two people is a story. So pull up a chair and an open mind and meet another one of my everyday extraordinary friends. Welcome to episode 30 of the Uncorked podcast. This will actually be the final episode this season, so make sure to hang around until the end so I can tell you what's coming. This week, my guest is Courtney Tipping. She told me at the beginning of our conversation that God is good and each day is a new day. I didn't even know half of her story and that mantra already impressed me. Now that I've heard the whole thing, I am blown away. You may need tissues for this one. Don't say I didn't warn you. Here is my conversation with Courtney. All right. Well, Courtney, welcome to the Uncorked Podcast. I'm so glad you could be here tonight. Thank you so much. So how is life going right now? How is your day-to-day? I know we were just both talking about how we're kind of done at the end of today, and but this is like one of the only times that we can just find quiet. I think you said you're actually in your car hiding from your people, and I am going <laughs> to attempt to be in my bedroom hiding from mine, but we still have one little person who lives with us. I just heard him running around, so y'all might be able to hear him as well. <laughs> so how are you doing? You're great. No, you're so right. I figured the car was our or was my best bet. Hopefully kids do stay asleep and daddy can kind of hold the fort down inside. And, I know, but, yeah, but they have I, like that sixth sense. Do you feel like they're going to, like, just because it's tonight, right. someone's going to just not be able to go to sleep? <laughs> right. Yes, you may not come outside was my only request to the husband. But, yes, I have um, Zoe is our oldest who's seven, and then Sadie is five, and then we have a little boy, Toby, who will be two in about two weeks. So, um, yeah, we have a full day also. Nanny, another little boy who's 10 months old, three days a week. So full day up until school's out, and then we had everybody else in the mix. And, yeah, so by about 7.30, 8, I'm, I'm ready for a little quiet time. <laughs> I bet. You just told us a little bit about your kiddos. Kind of, what is your elevator speech for you as a person, as a mama? I do really believe every day is a brand new day. The Lord has given us that day. And um, whether the day prior has been terrible or it's been really great and joyful, you know, I really do start the day with it's a new day. The Lord is good to us. And, um, especially when things are, are heavier or harder, just that we're going to get through and we're okay. And I, I really try to also just continue to remind that to our kiddos too. Yeah, I love that. I love that perspective. I get so sucked in to life's drama sometimes and one day rolls into the next and I don't always remember that 
every day is a new day, and his mercies are new every morning. So I'm really thankful for that reminder from you. Yeah, no, that's a big deal for me. I feel like I can't rest well, even if that makes sense, going to sleep at night, stressed and worried about what new things are going to happen the next day, but knowing, like, he's got this, <laughs> and everything's under control, and, you know, we're going to wake up rested, hopefully everyone rested, <laughs> and start the next day. Yeah, that's a great perspective. Have you always had that perspective? Does that come naturally to you, or do you kind of feel like the twists and turns of life have kind of forced you to learn that lesson the hard way? I, I think it's both and. There's probably a level of of my of my norm that I would say I don't tend to get like super stressed out or get into too much drama or if that makes sense. Um, but I do absolutely think just life and just a lot of the heavy of life um, that has kind of come our way over the years has just I, the Lord's just taught me that and reminded me to. Yeah, to remember that and know that that is his truth, not anything I can do with my own strength either. Yeah, for sure. So our friend Blythe, who was also a guest on the podcast a couple weeks ago, introduced us. And I was able to poke around a little bit on your blog and, of course, what Blythe told me. And so I know that your life has had some twists and turns and some of those hardships that you were talking about. So what was the first time when you look back that, life really took one of those like hard lefts or right turns that you weren't expecting? Sure. I think kind of the beginning of things for my husband, Alan, and I really was, we were, we got married in 2004 and kind of were on the same page of within the next couple of years starting to try to build a family and, uh, and get pregnant. And that didn't happen for us. Um, after about two years, I guess I started just seeking out, like, is there something I need to do more or is there, you know, a special doctor I need to, to go to? And we uh, did end up seeing a fertility specialist in Columbia who told me that I had something called PCOS, um, which is polycystic ovarian syndrome. And with that, it would just be difficult for us to conceive. So we started a road, um, not super aggressive road of fertility um, in 2008, um, doing an IUI. Kind of fast forward, we did that procedure once and it did not work and basically new insurance would pay for it one more time. <laughs> so we did it uh, once more in October of 2008 and it did work. Um, I kind of continued to go back for blood work and we went for an ultrasound about eight weeks in and um, there were six heartbeats. So literally, I can still remember my husband starting to like <laughs> fall down in his chair beside me. <laughs> and we both were just in shock of what, you know, what this mean? What, how are we going to do this? Are they going to be okay? Our doctor was very quick even to say, you need to basically abort one of these children because they're not all going to survive. And we at the time... And, of course, even still are strongly believed that, you know, we would not do that. So we we told him pretty quickly, you know, that's not something we will do we'll, to keep these babies healthy. And there were, let's see, five sacks. So four babies had their own sack, and one sack basically was identical twins. And he, the fertility doctor at the time, was sure that those the identical twins would not survive 
and again, we were like, no, we're going to do <laughs> do whatever we need to to keep them healthy. And he quickly kind of handed us over to a high-risk doctor here in Columbia. And we went to him and kind of got a plan of, you know, you, no matter what, will be in the hospital at 24 weeks until the baby reach basically 28 weeks gestation um, is the earliest that, you know, they could do any sort of help for them on the outside of the womb. And so, again, kind of fast forward about mm, February of 2009, we found out it was four boys, two girls. And that was kind of the uh, point we started to do a little bit of had a few showers, just more prep preparation. I think I was way more at the time very concerned with my physical body and how I was growing and what I needed to do. They told me I needed to eat like 10,000 calories a day, which is nearly impossible. Wow, that's crazy. Um, but I think Alan, my husband, was, uh, you know, how are we going to financially provide? How are we going to, you know, a lot of the logistics he was he was thinking about a lot more. And then in March of 2009, I went into preterm labor. We went into the hospital really not knowing what to expect. But at that point, was I was about five centimeters dilated and ended up delivering all six of them over the course of about three weeks. Um, I was in the hospital, and we lost all of them over the course of those three weeks. Right around, it was about the 23, 24-week mark. I looked like I was ready to deliver one full-term baby. But yeah, so that was a, a long answer to your question. Is I think that was very much the, the beginning of some, some really, really dark and hard times for us. I can't even imagine. And over three weeks, that's just such a long time to be in that state of kind of limbo, not knowing, and kind of, you know, did you kind of get the feeling after you had lost a couple that like it was just a matter of time right over the next couple of weeks you know did you feel were they giving you any sort of hope like in some ways you know? um the the first two were um the, the identical twins and so once I delivered the first one Jacob they I pretty much knew I would deliver the second one within hours or days so they were I delivered them about three days apart um but after I delivered Evan the second baby we started to have a good many ultrasounds where the, the doctors were a good bit more hopeful like these babies have more space you know we're gonna up these drugs <laughs> to try to keep them in like they were a lot more hopeful and I, so I do think we had a handful of days where we were like I mean we continue to pray Lord just let us go home with one baby and that was kind of our constant prayer and after those days passed looking back my husband would say he knew that we were st that the babies were starting to deliver again once I started delivering that third baby and once that started it was it was a lot quicker and we knew at that point that, that none of them you know were gonna survive and I by that point was on so much medicine it took me really talking to people that were by our side to kind of put all the pieces together of what all happened just because I was physically not even really coherent of what all was happening, like traumatically. So from Alan, he was seeing everything and 
after the fact, it's like, I, I, it'll be a long time before I can relive <laughs> a lot of that time. So, yeah, I think there was both the plead and not wanting to believe that this was really happening. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What does that do to your faith or what did that do to your faith? Were you, how were you and God during those three weeks and then the weeks and months following that? Probably one of the like biggest moments that has really stuck with me and I remember the most was in between losing the first two and that before starting to go into labor again with the, the latter four was just praying. It was Romans fifteen thirteen, just that the God of all hope would fill us with joy and peace. And I felt that deeply um, and knew in that time, like even if we did lose all of the babies that like the Lord was still good. And even if I didn't see it on this earth, like there was purpose and people would know who he was, even in the loss of the babies. That was big for me. I think as days did go by and grief did set in more of just that uh, reminder of truth, like this is unfair and really hard, but he is good and he is taking care of us. After we lost the six, about a week went by before we did a service for them. And actually at that point, I had gotten an infection where they needed to go back in to do a DNC. And that was almost harder <laughs> than the process of losing the baby. Because I think at that point, I did feel like I was getting tortured. Like, no way am I going back into that hospital. I just lost all of our children. <laughs> and I now need to go into surgery. Basically on the day of the service for them. And so I, at that, I really do think that <laughs> our nurses and doctors knew, like, this will forever traumatize them if they don't get to go to service for their babies. And so I, I went in a wheelchair with IVs to the baby service <laughs> and came back in time to have that surgery. And again, I think that was something where, yes, you know, things could have been videotaped or whatever, but it was really important for both of us. I think be there for us, but also be there for our community to see like they're okay. We are pushing forward. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, I, I can't imagine what that emotional roller coaster must have been like. Just the grief in and of itself, and then the prospect of not even being able to be in person for the service. I just, I, I can imagine. I can't even imagine actually what, you know, what that could have looked like and just how brave and strong and courageous that you were to be in the midst of all of that, that your body was physically going through and then having to push through, you know, such a big emotional thing and, and even just showing your face in public, you know, in a wheelchair and, you know, probably not the way you wanted to, you know, present no, yourself no, yes. on a day like that. Um, no. Just one thing on top of the other and um, in ways that you, I'm sure, felt like just a nightmare replaying over and over again. You know, you can't even, like, make, you can't even make that stuff up. No, it was, my husband's a pastor and we had incredible community around us. But we lost the babies in March and it was, we had a, a solid four to five months of where, you know, a lot of me was wanting to talk and process out loud, and he was very much the opposite 
especially just after, I think, witnessing everything that I went through and everything he watched with the babies. And we realized by the end of that summer, like just a deep <laughs> a deep need for counseling together. And um, that was a big turning point for us in really walk, like continuing the process of grief and having help in that and you know, what was helpful for him, what was helpful for me, a a safe place for both of us to kind of open that file of this this is what I'm really feeling, this is what I'm really feeling, but I'm not going to ask you to open that up any other time in counseling if we don't need to. (laughs) And that was huge for us, really walking through grief into even the thoughts of trying to get pregnant again as well. Yeah, so you've Mm -hmm. been through, you know, the season of infertility, this ups and downs of you know, finding out that you were pregnant with six babies and then consequently losing six babies. How do you even move on from that? What do you, what, you know, what does it look like besides getting really great counseling and, you know, walking with the Lord through that and trusting and, and having to kind of grow and stretch your faith? What was next? Like, how do you even begin to think about moving on or think about, you know, do we even try again? (laughs) Yeah, I was definitely scared <laughs> out of my mind. Um, we, as we kind of started that counseling that fall, uh, pretty close to that same time, I did just sort of search out even more doctors of like, hey, this is our story. <laughs> what do we do next? And that really took a few months talking to different folks and ended up really with an OBGYN who is now a dear friend of mine. Long story short, she is the wife of the high-risk doctor who was with us through the pregnancy of the sex tablets. Um, so she also very much knew our story and everything that had kind of happened, but she also knew I was not jumping into anything extreme <laughs> to try to get pregnant or anything like that. So that was huge for me to know, like, all right, Lord, if this is something you want for us I need major clarity like I'm 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 pretty scarred and pretty scared of how to go forward and so I I think that was a big help having someone from the medical side who was on our side and you know wasn't pushing us to do anything you know big her name's Wendy she kind of walked with me for those months I do remember kind of coming up on the one year anniversary of of losing a baby I remember praying like Lord just get us through the month of March I don't even want to go through March (laughs) thinking back on what all that had happened and within the first week of March I found out I was pregnant with Zoe and I was like 12 weeks along so felt like out of nowhere (laughs) Um, and we we were ecstatic and I think uh, also seeing Alan like uh, for me to see him just kind of that lens pulled back of hope in his eyes again was huge for me. I haven't seen us, you know, in a year um, from you and just seeing that glimmer of hope from him was a big deal. And he was very open and saying, like, I'm very scared and until we bring this baby home, until I see this baby. So kind of walking back into pregnancy in that road was still a very scary one because we just didn't know what to expect and drastically different to be pregnant with one after being pregnant with six. 
Holy cow, I can't even imagine. That's crazy. Yeah, it, it was a really sweet thing to have friends who had walked deeply with us through losing the babies and just the the excitement of that, the trauma of that, to then coming around us um, also as we found out we were pregnant again. And my pregnancy with Zoe was very good. And yeah, she was born in September of 2010. Awesome. Well, I'm sure that was a huge relief to bring home a healthy baby after such a hard pregnancy and experience the first time around. And so after Zoe, what is the next part of your story? So, yeah, Zoe um, was born in 2010, and then life was somewhat uh, normal, <laughs> or new normal. Yeah, learning to to parent for the first time, and, um, and mixed with also grief as well. That does not ever leave you, as I'm sure you know. <laughs> and, yeah, the balance of that new normal and being a mama and a daddy and I kind of fast forward, not feeling great, not sure what was going on, and in fact was pregnant with Sadie. So she was born in March of 2013. Uh, again, getting used to two little girls and a big sister and all of that. And yeah, fast forward to Sadie had turned a year old. We kind of mark a lot of, or I said, yeah, mark, I don't know if that's the right word, but Easter in our church is a is a big day. It's a big weekend, as I'm sure it is for many. Um, but we do baptisms at our church, and just a huge day of celebration. Um, and that had happened on Sunday, and always kind of take Monday off. Like Alan takes Monday off, and so the Monday after that particular Easter, he had gone to do some things with friends, and I took the girls to our zoo and but Zoe said to me about pretty much right when we got there mama needs to go to the potty something is hurting and I didn't think much of it really at this point she was three so we just turn one um so they were still pretty I mean very tiny we go in the little family bathroom and she goes to use the restroom and she was peeing blood and I knew then something major was going on. So I called Alan and said, hey, I'm going to a pediatrician. This is what's happening. Um, you need to make your way to meet me. <laughs> we went to our pediatrician, which was very close to the zoo, thankfully. And he said, yeah, I don't know. The pediatrician told us, you know, I don't know what, what's going on, but we need to get her in for an ultrasound over at the children's hospital. Go and was see she old enough to kind of perceive that something was really wrong? no. She wasn't. Um, I, she knew something was uncomfortable and not okay, but she definitely, and honestly, at that point, I mean, I knew something was happening that had never happened before, but I had no idea what was about to happen <laughs> or what we were about to be told. Um, and, yeah, so the ultrasound nurse came in and started to scan her stomach and she started on the right side of her belly. She said, you know, everything looks fine here. And she started to scan like across her belly to the left side. And the nurse just started having tears like rolling down her eyes. (laughs) And I was like, what is going on? She said, have you felt anything on her? 
you know, have you noticed anything on her stomach? And I was like, no. And Alan is there at that point, and we both are looking to her like, oh, my gosh, like, we bathe her, we tickle her, we, you know, help dress her. Like, what are we missing? And she said there's a, there's a very large mass on her kidney. So kind of from that point on was pretty much a whirlwind because they kind of rush in a radiologist who starts telling us more. And the tumor on her kidney had, was so big that it was pushing all of her intestines back over to the other side. They kind of started scanning everywhere else in her chest, and there were tumors up into her lungs and around, like, one of the bigger arteries to her heart. And so, I mean, it was within within a few hours. They told us she had stage 4 cancer, and it was called a Wilms tumor. And so we went from the zoo that morning to an ultrasound to being admitted to the hospital we we kind of begged to go home the next morning just for really the day because the following day they were going to take her into surgery to do a biopsy and put a port in. And at that point they were kind of saying, we don't know when y'all go home for the next time that you'll go home. So I'm so thankful we had a semi-normal day at home where we had people just come over and pray, tried to get our head and our heart on <laughs> straight and talk to Zoe and Sadie. Um, it, again, at that point, Sadie for sure was very unsure of what was going on. Um, and then, yeah, we went back into the hospital that next day. She had a port put in, which is how she would get chemo for the rest for the following year. This time around, are you thinking, like, surely this can't be, like, not after everything else that we've been through could this possibly still be our story yeah I think there was definitely a lot of that and just a cry of like please Lord give us um, endurance because we've got to fight for our kids life (laughs) and yeah like not that feeling of wanting to protect your child and that feeling of there's no possible way for me to protect you (laughs) right now. And uh, we, Alan and I both very early on said, we'll do our best to explain everything to her and not surprise her with things or make some illusion that this is all okay when it's not and explaining Mm -hmm. to her, like, you know, the Lord is good in some awful way. This is definitely the way, you know, a form of just the yuckiness of our world. <laughs> and and we hate this. We'll continue every day to, you know, for the Lord to heal your body. And we'll continue to believe that. And um, I think uh, the endurance part was something I've never come up against as far as, like, having energy to um, love her well and be mama <laughs> and also making sure she was getting the care that she needed also balancing Sadie and wanting to love on her and her not be with a thousand different people while we were in the hospital and just not being prepared I think for like the the marriage part <laughs> of we Alan and I learned even more so and very quickly how to be really good teammates he, Alan tended to really spend more time at home with Sadie when I was in the hospital and 
there were times we would for sure switch off <laughs> to where he was there and, you know, I was home. But, yeah, that was really hard to know. Like, it's highly unlikely that we will, you know, be together <laughs> at this point or that point, depending on how she was doing. I hope that makes sense. Kind of yeah. try to well, mumble it. <laughs> yeah, um, well, you're having, you know, you're dividing and conquering, but then that doesn't leave you, you know, time for date nights and to sleep in the same bed and to do the yeah. things that keep marriages kind of on the up and up and strong and healthy sure. and, and, and a will stressful thing. And our community was unbelievably strong and helpful and provided in so many ways. So I do feel like, and that's one thing as time has gone by that I sense so much more of of wanting to like help other families who don't have community around them and like walking through cancer because we were even though we were Alan and I were one one place one the other I felt like people came around us and said you know give us all the things that you don't need to think about right now and that helped us so so much and and things like yeah we weren't definitely able to have a date night every week but you know, people giving us gift cards to to make the effort to be able to do that when when things did slow down a, a teeny bit. Uh, the first bit of time she started treatment, we were in and out of the hospital a whole bunch, like being inpatient. And then um, after the first few months, we did end up, a lot of her treatment was in our clinic, like the hematology clinic. So it was more of we would spend a, about a full day every week there where she would get her treatment and blood work and things. Um, and then five to six months in, we knew she was going to have to have her surgery at um, St. Jude, which is up in Memphis. And so that was, um, I think, one of the harder times in the whole journey because we were gone for about three weeks and we left Sadie with friends and family and then kind of coming back home from that. So she had her kidney removed there and as much of tumor that they could get at that point. It kind of felt like the end of treatment and things, but it actually was more of the middle because when we came back, she then had to have more chemo and radiation and things for the next few months. Kind of going back to what I said a minute ago, it just again was, Lord, please give us the endurance. And, you know, please allow her to keep fighting um, in this. And, uh, yeah, she was and still is an incredible little fighter. And she finished treatment uh, close to December of that year. And then we had a good many things she had to do those next few months. Yeah. And then kind of a significant time was her getting her port taken out, which happened in March of 2015 which kind of was our, our our time of you don't need to be on any active treatment. She still had tumor in one of the arteries that goes to the heart but at that time, and actually she still has some of that, they think kind of became necrotic tumor, so dead tumor. And we just hope and pray that it never changes from that. <laughs> so, yeah, that was very significant. And at that point, we got to do a, a Make-A-Wish trip to Disney World, which was huge for our family. It was kind of a sense of normal after a very 
crazy, <laughs> crazy, crazy. Um, that happened in April of that year, which was awesome. I'm just captivated because, you know, sometimes I have friends on the show and then sometimes I have new friends on the show. And so I'm hearing the information all for the first time and I'm just, I'm just listening and processing and I'm just continually amazed at, you know, just how faithful that you guys were able to be through that time. And I know that there were probably really, really hard days, but even just being able to talk about it in the language that you use to talk about it, I think is absolutely incredible. And what was Zoe's faith like during all of that? Like what was, I feel like kids are just, they always show us up. A hundred percent. Within like the first few weeks when she was diagnosed and they started those awful medicines, yes, we knew that they were helping and we prayed that they were helping and really taking all of the cancer out of her body, it uh, made her feel terrible. And terrible was like 105 fevers. She didn't know what was happening. So just screaming and that point of things, it was like, oh my goodness, I want to take every ounce of this away from you. So I would say that was probably one of the most extreme times that she was hurting. And similar to that, around the time of her recovering from her surgery. But outside of that, besides her little bald head and her skinny little body, (laughs) you would have had no idea what she was going through by the way that she, um, yeah, just so super lively. And we continued to just remind her, like, your name means life. And that is what we're pleading to the Lord for. And you continue to show us that every day. The people, even in the children's hospital, the nurses, whether in the clinic or on the floor, really became like family. And I think a lot of that was Zoe (laughs) wanting them to be a part of whatever she was doing, um, whether it was to put on as many temporary tattoos as she possibly could (laughs) or um, (laughs) the kind of stuff that we just kind of tried to bypass time. She was fighter and even a side of feisty that was really good and needed, <laughs> I think, really. We always joke that the things that make our kids the hardest to raise are also the things that will probably serve them best in life. A hundred percent, yeah. I also never would have dreamed we would have been walking with, like, kids that were in treatment with us who we got really close to. So if a child was in treatment at the same time with Zoe, we were with them for at least like eight to ten hours a week. And there was one particular family who we got to know really well, um, and their little girl was about six months to a year younger than Zoe, and she actually relapsed um, with the cancer she had while on treatment. Um uh, towards the end of when Zoe was finishing up treatment, and we, we did really walk through about two months of her leaving this world. And just that, hard enough for Alan and I to talk through it ourselves, but explaining to her and her wanting to be around Madeline and be around her parents and um, and and knowing even what that meant to the parents as well, and, and even continues to be something that Zoe will will talk about, um, not just losing a friend, but just, hey, I had cancer. Is this going to happen to me? You know, what, what and I was, 
I don't think that's ever going to leave us because we just continue to be around other families, you know, who have who have walked through similar or um, who have lost kids as well. Um, so uh, the the growing up <laughs> that I did not want her to do, but that she and even Sadie, as she has gotten even in these last few years, um, as Zoe has continued to have to do scans and blood work and different things, she understands. Zoe understands a lot more, and Sadie also now understands a lot more. And so I feel like in that regard, they just know a lot more than probably a lot of children (laughs) um, about suffering. I do want to tell you, too, as we went on that Make-A-Wish trip, I found out that I was pregnant again. And about probably two months after that trip, had like our first trimester screening where we found out that the baby had something called a crania and uh, went into the ultrasound not knowing anything was wrong. Thought it was kind of one of those times to know if we were going to find out if it was a boy or a girl, but um, we're told the baby would be fine while I was pregnant, but would not be fine um, once delivery came. And so that was also a time where, (laughs) again, I was, Alan and I both pleading, we don't know where our energy and endurance and even hope is going to be. <laughs> and we we need you. And we almost, at this point, have to, like, remind ourselves, you are good. We know you're good. We need you desperately um, in this time. So for really the, the nine months after um, that, I went full term with our little girl, Mia. And I delivered her in November of 2015. I've just been really impressed at all the years you've given because I could not tell our story with years like you've had. So I'm extremely impressed. Well, I hope about the only way I can keep up um, with Tom from one one thing. But yeah, to see, was born November 5th and lived about 10 minutes basically the time in the OR of me having the C-section with her. And, yeah, there was a lot of grieving leading up to her being born and uh, different preparation than the sex sublets. Um, with the sex sublets, that was very emergent. Like, I had no time to prepare or, you know, get things in order in any way that I would have wanted that to all take place. And with Mia, our little girl, there was some beauty in getting to um, kind of work with a palliative care team at the hospital to prepare for her and give her the best opportunity at life and really give meaning to to her life, her delivery, and, you know, whatever the Lord had for her thereafter. And so we did a good bit of uh, photography and video and had a few f- close friends to be able to kind of share in that time. That was really, really a, a special, sweet, and nightmarish time in itself. Yeah, I think it, Alan um, had done probably more grieving leading up, and I did more uh, just preparing. And when we lost her, it I think I was a lot more surprised with my grief then and just not really knowing what to do. <laughs> Where do I go from here? Um, continuing life as new normal for the girls and just 
kind of living in survival mode for quite some time. And so I'm just impressed that you're like even walking around and breathing. I think I probably would have put myself to bed for eternity with Netflix or something. (laughs) Um, I mean, it's just, it's overwhelming to just think even, you know, in the adoption world, we have walked through some really hard times. And so we get this kind of sick sense of humor. But I mean, even just listening to you talk about the difference between being prepared for Mia and being able to prepare your heart and and kind of set up a situation to be as beautiful as it could be in a really, really tough situation. And just even being able to compare that to another situation where you had lost children um, is just devastating to think that there's even two stories there to compare and yeah. And that oh, your well, normal is so drastically <laughs> different than so many other people's and that your faith is because of that so much richer and deeper and just beautiful because it's it's tested and refined. It's been through that refiner's fire over and over again and it has left something so beautiful and gracious and and so, you know, I guess that's what we have to cling to in moments of, you know, God, why on this earth? You know, why us? Why all of those things? Yeah. That's one of the, I feel like, precious details that I'm like, this can't go unnoticed is the nurse we had with the six, really at the end of delivery, and the nurse who, like, literally wrote out all of their death certificates and stayed way past her, like, due time on the clock. She was also there for Zoe, um, Zoe's delivery. And then she was there with Mia. And then um, fast forward to adopting Toby. She was also there with that. And so just super beautiful, even for a lot of the hospital staff, too. Uh, in some ways, walk full circle with us um, <laughs> that have just kind of seen our story unravel and thread through <laughs> many different things. But yeah, so when we had lost Mia in November, we had for years thought at some point in life we would love to adopt and didn't know what that looked like and not had that on our radar at that time necessarily just in being really walking in grief. Um, yeah, but, I can't imagine why. <laughs> right? I don't know what my mind was probably thinking, but, um, but yeah, we had taken the kids, the girls, on a spring break trip that following March. I got a text from uh, my friend Tiffany, um, and just to give you a little backstory on Tiffany, she was actually one of our oncology nurses with Zoe in the hospital (laughs) who became a friend um, was kind of that nurse who found me (laughs) at my lowest times and was like here's what you need to do here's you know here's what we're gonna do and just was very much picked me up in some of those times anyway she became a close friend she sends me a text and she says hey I know at some point you've told me that you and Alan are interested to adopt someday let me tell you the situation. And long story short, she had met a friend at her son's talent show at their school. And this friend's sister was in town in her like 35th week of pregnancy, knowing she needed to 
get away from some bad things that were going on or bad influences. She she came up to South Carolina to be with her sister. Well, the sister and my friend Tiffany all end up at this talent show together, and Tiffany notices she's pregnant. They start talking more, and she says, I'm really looking for someone to parent this baby. Um, I want to find a family to adopt. And so Tiffany sends me all this and says, are you interested? <laughs> I just kind of flash my phone at Alan, like, honey, you got to read this. <laughs> I don't know what to say or what to do. And so we kind of said, we would love to know more information. Let's, you know, give us time to kind of pray over this for the next day or two. and we'll talk again and Tiffany and I both end up going over to the sister's house and after probably being with them about three hours she looks at me and says without a doubt I know you're supposed to be the mother of the baby in my tummy and I left there I told I mean I called Alan probably half screaming (laughs) like I think this is for real I don't know what we need to do we need to pray a lot and we need to really quickly start working on adoption paperwork because I know that there's a lot of it and we don't have a whole lot of time if this is really going to happen. So we basically within that week, uh, within about a week to not even close to 10 days, we finished all of the paperwork we did through or like with an attorney and I went to one OB appointment with her and it was just a few days after that, that I, that Alan and I sat down with the girls and said, this is the deal. <laughs> You're about to be sisters. And it was, I mean, we were cautiously telling them, of course, but also we had walked through a lot with the girls, both praying, praying leading up to knowing we were pregnant with Mia and then ha- having to tell them, like, yes, uh, God answered prayers, we're pregnant, and then but God's taking the baby away. Does that make sense? Um, It's a lot to handle as an adult, let alone uh, uh, maybe four- and five-year-olds at that point. (laughs) Right, 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 right. Yeah, so as we told them about adopting Toby, um, even just I think the reality for them setting in of, is this baby really coming home from the hospital so soon? They had just told me a goodbye in the hospital and she did not come home you know there, there wasn't a crib there wasn't any of any of that uh sorry i'm really asking how much i'm sharing with you <laughs> it, it does get me very emotional <laughs> but uh um sorry yeah i think seeing even the joy for them kind of leading up to Literally, it was about a two-week time period that we met birth, the birth mom. Then both families met each other, and within that next week, Toby was born. So over the course of really three weeks, all of this happened, and he was born on the 25th of April. And two days later, um, she signed all of the paperwork, and crazy, I feel like, in those three weeks, their, their, Toby's whole birth family became a family and close friends with us. I felt like it was a very non-stereotypical adoption of what I had perceived maybe could be or would be when he was born. We had a hospital room right beside 
her and Toby went back and forth. We, you know, families met. We're in both hospital rooms. It's very surreal. And I think Alan and I both were like, if we tried to explain this to anyone, they would not probably believe us mm-hmm. <laughs> unless they were really seeing this. So yeah, he he came home. I guess the twenty seventh. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, what a beautiful, redemptive way to redeem a hospital experience. That God would give you something that was so beautiful to happen in a place that so much pain and so much tragedy had, where all of those things had also happened. And so, looking back, you know what what are your paradigms that have shifted? You have lived so much of life and so much suffering that most of us will never see um, in one lifetime. And so how does that shape how you see the world? Sure. You know, I think one of the biggest things is seeing a lens, like seeing through a lens of, of what's really important and, and what's not. I feel like, you know, over, over time, uh, maybe for me 10 years ago, things that seemed important, are just not important to me anymore. Um, And I think that is um, gosh, probably one of the biggest things too that we just try to continue to to teach our our kids and know that if we are loving, if we love Jesus and we are loving the people around us, there really is not much else that matters. (laughs) And I think also knowing that just that the Lord is good doesn't mean like does not mean easy or um, the way that I want it to be. Um, and I, I feel like that's not something that's, that is said too much. But I think that is one thing that at times I've had to say and know. Okay, I know I believe this, um, and other times that I have to say, Lord, please help me to know this is true. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Do you feel like because of your experiences, do you feel like it's easier to hold the things of this life, maybe even your kids, more loosely? Or do you feel like you hold on way more tighter because you know what it feels like to have such great loss and suffering? Um, I think I probably probably do hold a little more loosely or just that that my my hands are way more open than clenched tight. I'm like, I want to control this. I want to to make sure this is going to go on this way or they're going to be okay this way. I feel like my hands are just open of, okay, Lord, we want to do our part. But we also know, like, you have not only numbered our days, but you also, um, you know, every detail about us too, to know what, you know, what's going to happen and what's going to be not to say that very often we let the little mundane things distract us for sure. But I do think um, some of that has definitely been put more into perspective and more clear for me through a lot of what we've been through. I bet. And I think that's probably one of the beautiful gifts of your suffering is that you probably see other folks, you know, wrapped up in so many things and you're able to see the world, I would imagine the way that God would prefer that we see it. Um, And I think that's such a beautiful, beautiful thing. I know that I 
am wrapped up in all kinds of things that I'm sure God's looking down and thinking, you're just, one day you'll know. One day you'll know that that was just not worth it. Um, <laughs> but fight for sure is just um, expecting bad. And it, that mm. sounds probably terrible. But I, I do feel like that is something I have to fight. Of, no, I don't need to. I wouldn't say I do that in tons and tons of situations. But I feel like in different scenarios, um, especially like in anything kind of around things with babies or going through some of that or even cancer world of things. I don't know whether if it's like a self-protection of uh, like expect bad in some way. Yeah, um, expect the worst. And if it doesn't happen that way, you're pleasantly surprised. Relieved. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, the flip of that is I feel like I have learned, like especially with Zoe's like scans and things that we do pretty often, that I, I literally have to tell myself, like, I'm not going to worry until there's something to worry about. <laughs> and I don't know whether that's just we've done it so much or I like coping. <laughs> but both of those things, I feel like I have to give to the Lord a whole lot. <laughs> yeah, I imagine. I imagine. Um, well, the two wrap-up questions I always ask, the first one is, um, what are you not doing? I feel like social media, especially Instagram feeds, really suck me in to the beauty and I love it, but they also make me feel horribly inadequate, um, especially when people show pictures of their houses. <laughs> so um, I enjoy asking my guests just in solidarity and to help me feel better um, what you are not doing. I love it. I, I would say in, in this particular like season of life, even stuff around like self-care for me. So I feel like um way more out of physical shape than I have been in other times of my life. Yeah, um, I'm right there with you. <laughs> yeah, this probably could be something very simple that I need to do, um, whether it's like an extra loop around the neighborhood with the stroller or, <laughs> you know, I'm, I am chasing around a two-year-old most of the time, so that counts as my exercise right totally you totally get um, passed for that because I'm not doing um, that and I'm also not taking any loops around my neighborhood <laughs> yeah thanks for sharing um and then on the flip side um do you have a life hack that's helping you out right now I probably would say being like uh guarding my like sleep time <laughs> mm. so I do feel like Moving out of that first year with with having Toby, like baby year, and even just before that through stuff of pregnancy and uh, cancer, all of that sleep was uh, terrible, <laughs> um, either in stress or physical, anything that was going on. And so it really felt like in this last, I don't know, six to eight months of sleeping, um, I don't know, six to eight hours for the first time in a very long time. Um, and so just I do feel like I am being more mindful and kind of guarding that, okay, I'm getting in bed at this time, and um, hopefully no one's awake before this time. <laughs> so that probably sounds really simple, but something that hasn't happened in, in uh, many years. <laughs> no, I think that's great because I, I think we underestimate how much that sleep 
changes everything, like the impact that that has on all of the other little things. Um, mm -hmm. And just the converse of that, which is when we're not sleeping, like things can fall apart very, very quickly. <laughs> And things yeah. get ugly very, very quickly for our kids and for us, I feel like. So I feel like sleep is a linchpin for so many things and how we, you know, de-stress and process, even even process trauma. And so I think that's for sure a phenomenal life hack that we all should be taking a part of as often as possible. Yeah, and I think I, I, when you say life hack, I'm like, I think it's one of those things that, when it, it's going, when I'm sleeping consistently and well for a number of days, I'm just super thankful for it. Like, oh Lord, thank you. This is this is way better than it's been in a really long time. I think that's a perfect life hack. So, well, Courtney, I am so thankful that Blythe connected us. I have been super blessed by your story, and I know that those people listening are just going to be blessed by it as well, blown away by your faithfulness, encouraged, challenged, all of those things. Where can people find you? Are you on social media if folks are touched by your story or find something that, you know, they're walking through that's tough? Um, how can they find you? I um, don't do as great of a job as I would like as in the blog world, um, but I do from time to time write on a blog, which is Tipping's march forward and then I, i'm definitely more consistent like on instagram which is just court allen so it's c-o-u-r-t-a-l-l-e-n those are probably the two main places yeah perfect i love that and tipping's march forward is such a i don't know it feels like a really apropos name for your blog so <laughs> well done oh <laughs> uh, well it's i think most of the more uh Sick things happened in March, so somehow I had to make that a big part of <laughs> of the blog. Yeah, thank you so much, really, for for wanting to hear and spending time tonight. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you again. I feel like I am definitely on the receiving end of the greater blessing in this deal. So I really appreciated hearing your story, and we'll hopefully get to talk soon. Um, tissues, right? Every time I listen to this conversation, Courtney's soft Southern voice seems in such stark contrast to what she's been through. There's so much bravery and faith and grace and not even a hint of bitterness and resentment laced in her sweet voice. What was the most challenging part of what she shared for you? I love getting feedback for the show through an iTunes review or via social media. You can find the links to my social media as well as Courtney's blog and her Instagram at www.com thecorkums.com. While you're there, make sure to subscribe to the blog newsletter so you can get updates on what's coming podcast-wise later this summer. There are some fun changes coming based on audience feedback, so you don't want to miss out. If you subscribe, you'll also get a great parenting freebie to walk you through making connected parenting decisions. It's a win-win, so have a great summer and meet me back here on August 7th for the launch of the next season.